0: Avenue Podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl. And here today, we have come together to talk about poor things. This is a 2023 release brought to you by none other than one of our very favorites, Yorgos Lanthimos. Those of you that know me outside of this podcasting world might know that I left this movie theater, um, after seeing this, this film extremely troubled. Um, no, it's not a horror movie by any account. It, it is, you know, described as a comedy or a drama or a romance or a fantasy. I personally didn't really get any of that from my viewings. So that's kind of what we're here to talk about. I personally think that Poor Things is horrific. I, on a whim, went to see this film uh, alone. And presumably everyone else was under the impression, same impression I was, in that this movie would not be terrifying in any form or fashion. And that... um, you know, they all brought their dates. So I was actually the only person in the theater, in the full theater at uh, Alamo Draft House, that went alone. So I thought, that's odd. Um, I will, you know, see what other people think at the end of this. Because halfway through, and if you've seen this film already, like, you know. Halfway through, I was thinking to myself... What have I gotten myself into? This is a nightmare of epic proportions. And it has gore. It has nudity. It has a ton of sex. It has everything you could ever imagine all wrapped up into one, which, you know, uh, in a certain way, when we think about Yorgos Lanthimos, that's kind of what we expect, but there was nothing that could have prepared me for what I saw. So, um, let's just, let's just start off. Who, who's in this movie, right? Um, Emma Stone. I'm obsessed with Emma Stone. Okay. I, I, she's to die for. Mark Ruffalo is not my favorite, but he's really great in this film. Willem Dafoe, love, super fan. Rami Yusuf, love, like, star-studded cast. Emma Stone put her heart, body, soul, and mind into this character. I cannot understate, like, I cannot tell you enough how incredible the performances are. And for that alone, I think this is an Oscar contender for best picture it's nominated for 11 oscars currently uh it's going to be tough to go up against the zone of interest it's going to be tough to go up against anatomy of a fall and honestly this is one of those films poor things that you don't i didn't personally ever see as being a, a best picture contender but after we had last year you know um everything everywhere all at once it kind of like shaped the way that we think about what it means to be a best picture in this day and age and so i think we'll start seeing some of these more austere uh out there ultra creative types of works as best picture contenders now This is a long movie, okay? It's two hours and 21 minutes. Does it feel long? Yes. Because every time you're hoping for something to get better, it just takes longer and longer. And, you know, does it necessarily ever get better? I don't, that's for you to decide. But just looking quickly at our IMDb, The incredible tale about the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, a young woman brought back to life by the brilliant and unorthodox scientist, Dr. Godwin Baxter. And I'm so glad that somebody was able to take all two hours and 21 minutes of this movie and the shit show that it is and put it into one sentence because that person is a better person and a better writer than I will ever be. So I think I've said enough. And as you can tell by the way that I'm talking, I'm very conflicted with how I feel about this film. So I think maybe it's best we just get started. And of course, I love to read and hear what all of you are thinking about, you know, the films that we talk about. So after I get done and you listen to this, I'll be anxiously waiting to hear what you all think. So let's jump right in to poor things. So the opening scene is one for the books. I'll say that there's a beautiful woman in a, you know, long blue flowing dress. Her hair is up in what looks almost like a pin curl style updo, like before when you're sleeping in them before you take them out. And as we zoom in on the head of this woman, she is standing on the edge of a bridge and just jumps off and falls. So we see kind of the moment of impact cut immediately. We're in black and white for a good portion of this movie. And we see Emma stone who's playing Bella Baxter. She is at a piano and she is doing like what, you know, little kids do where they just smash on the keys over and over. And they're not really, she's not playing anything in particular. She's just making noise. This is also when we get introduced to Dr. Godwin, which is played by Willem Dafoe. He walks in to find Bella hammering on the piano keys with her feet and her hands and Dr. Godwin is very, um, disfigured. He has a lot of scarring on his face and other parts of his body. He comes in to look at Bella while she's playing and then they sit down for lunch and you can tell that Bella does not entirely know what table manners are. She's picking up food with her hands when she decides that she doesn't like something, she spits it out. The eating scenes in this film are a little uncomfortable because um, Dr. Godwin has some sort of uh, I don't even know how to explain it to you, device that he uses while he eats that um, sort of looks like an IV that hooks up to him that pumps all these different gases inside of him. And after he eats or is done eating, or sometimes even in the middle of eating, he lets out what looks to be like a burp, right? But it's it's not. Um, it's the expulsion of these gases in the form of a bubble that floats off into the air and then pops. So if you have problems with watching things while you eat, I'm going to go ahead and say, this is not a good movie to watch while you're eating anything. After their meal, Dr. Godwin leaves, he's dressed to go teach a class. He is like a medical, uh, surgical professor. So, you know, there are obviously a lot of surgeries, um, that are rather graphic in this film, I might add. And as he's approaching the door to leave, uh, Bella is walking behind him. She really can't form words at this point. And also there are animals in the house that are not really quite what they should look like. So there's like the body of a, uh, of a goose, or I'm sorry, like the neck and head of a goose. And then the body of what looks like a dog. And so there's just like these different creatures all around. It's just always happening. So um, anyways, Dr. Godwin goes to work. Um, he is a surgical professor and he ends up asking one of the classmates or one of his students, excuse me, to meet him after class. And this a student's name is Max. And he asks Max if he wouldn't mind assisting him with a project this project is a little unknown at this time but we come to find out that this project is essentially that he needs someone to watch after bella essentially he wants max to be an observer of all things that bella does and to not interfere but basically collect data points about her and her development over time So they walk together from school to uh, Dr. Godwin's home where we find Bella smashing plates and cutlery on the ground while the nurse, who also somehow doubles as a housekeeper but is dressed as a nurse, uh, just watches and let her does it. Bella is introduced to Max, who (laughs) she promptly smacks in the nose. She knows the word for blood. But that's about it. Um, She walks with like straight legs, like almost like an infant learning how to walk for the first time. And Max says one of the lines that I don't know that you'll ever forget. He says, quote, what a pretty retard, end quote. He makes remarks about her beauty and this is when dr godwin explains i just need you to take notes for her and observe her like she's recovering from a traumatic brain injury so um she's developing at a rather accelerated pace but you know we just need somebody to to keep an eye and and document these things for science um bella promptly then pees on the floor and um God, when she sleeps, she sleeps like a dead person. I mean, she sleeps like nothing in the entire universe could ever wake her up. She is she is like a child, essentially. One day, uh, what appears to be a full-blown operating theater in uh, Dr. Godwin's house, which I'm not entirely sure how you're allowed to have that, uh, Bella is asking they're doing surgery on a live person so bella is asking if she can cut on the body as well and um dr godwin is like nope you can only cut on the dead ones no live bodies for bella so she takes a scalpel and starts to play with the flaccid penis of a corpse and stab it repeatedly in the face making comments about how it's gushing and she's obviously very uh I should say, like, scientifically inclined. She's not super... She's not afraid of these things. She's actually interested in these things. God bless her. I was not. Max gives an update to Dr. Godwin that, you know, she's making progress. She learns about 15 words a day, and her hair grows extremely quickly, like an inch a day or more, um, and her coordination is still lacking... At best, it's, it's unstable. Max obviously becomes more concerned and curious about Bella and, and her, you know, her situation. And every time he asks Dr. Godwin for any further information, Dr. Godwin shuts it down and is like, I think your job is just to collect data. So maybe you should just do that. Obviously, as Bella learns more words, she is inclined to start asking questions about her own self as well. And so, um, one night whenever Dr. Godwin is reading her a story in bed, she's like, are you my dad? And he's like, no, I'm not your dad. Um, but you're an orphan, uh, your parents, they weren't cut up, you know, they didn't die in a tragic, you know, necessarily way or violent way. They were brave explorers and they, um, were really good friends of mine. They died while they were exploring somewhere in South America. This seems to be a good enough answer for Bella and she, you know, falls asleep that night with, she's, she's sufficed with that answer. So she starts to ask questions to Max about, uh, a map. They're looking at a map and she points out Peru as the country that her parents disappeared in. She points at another place on the map and she's like, tell me more places. Where is this? And she points to Lisbon, Portugal. Meanwhile, she's shoving these nuts in her mouth. And of course, um, Max is supposed to be keeping track of like literally everything she does. And so uh, she's starting to play games with him a little bit to kind of, you know, just have fun. And she's like, you're writing down every nut that I put in my mouth. So she just starts to shove nuts in her mouth. So that way, like he can't count exactly how many there are eventually she is starting to get again more curious she wants to go outside she's not been outside but there's a staircase that leads up to the top like the roof of her building that she can go out on through a window so she goes up there with max to just look out at what is in the world she's she's not been outside it's all very alluring to her while they're outside, she has her hair braided and Max notices that there is a scar that goes up her neck, you know, through the bottom of her hair. And when she comes back inside, <laughs> she goes into the operating theater where a patient's head has, uh, unfortunately caught on fire and tells her, uh, her, her Godwin, her dad, surrogate dad, that she wants to go outside right now and he's like no i've created a safe world for you it's entertaining there's no reason for you to go outside so she starts taking things in the operating theater and smashing them like brains and jars and things like that that obviously they've been working very hard on so dr godwin immediately is like okay fuck this we're gonna go outside so they get in a horse-drawn carriage they take her out um to like a a green area like a field And uh, all the way, he's trying to explain to her that it's very dangerous outside. You know, there's scary things outside that can hurt you. Trying to paint this picture to make her not want to ever go outside again, basically. As soon as they stop the carriage and they're in this, you know, sort of park area, uh, she starts running, but of course, she doesn't run very fast because her coordination is bad. And she immediately flops down into a field of uh, or a pile of leaves and starts rolling around she's just so excited to be outside um and so max takes this opportunity to show her what what outside really has to offer so he picks up a frog to show it to her and she's like you should kill it and he's like what no i don't want to kill it so she slaps his hands together while the frog is in his hands and kills the frog she's very um she's very intrigued by this concept of death so then she starts to ask again more questions and she's asking Dr. Godwin why are your thumbs built the way that they are and so he goes on to tell this story about how his dad was also a great surgeon who would experiment on um, his own children. so Dr. Godwin's dad would experiment on him and he was doing something with bone development in hands and yeah, you know medical experimentation on your children is is always highly recommended. So a group of people approach as they're sitting down for a picnic and, even though it's beautifully sunny outside Dr Godwin is like you know what there's a storm coming we got to go Max questions him aside and says why do you have to scare her all the time this is this is kind of crazy and Dr Godwin just tells him like look she's an experiment if I don't control the conditions we may not get pure results so basically talking about her like she's not a human As she's looking out the window of their carriage, she notices that there's people eating ice cream and she wants some. Um, She tries to jump out of the carriage while it's moving to go get it. And when everyone tries to restrain her, she attacks Dr. Godwin physically and starts to attack Max as well. Dr. Godwin never comes without, uh, he's always packing, right? So he promptly chloroforms her so she goes to sleep and they bring her back home where they put her to bed max takes this opportunity to uh go and explore a little bit in dr godwin's office where he finds a series of drawings that sparks a conversation with dr godwin who catches max looking at his drawings uh this is where we find out what is the actual nature of bella's existence so the woman that we saw at the beginning of the film who threw herself off of a bridge is indeed Bella. So she threw herself off of this bridge and, um, Dr. Godwin found her body while it was still warm. It was super fresh and noticed that she was pregnant. He wanted to keep her alive with electricity, but after finding out she was pregnant, he decided there was only one option of things to do, which I think we all would have done the exact same thing, which is this. We would cut this fetus out of her stomach and put the fetus's brain into Bella's head and use electricity to somehow take this fetus brain and animate it to reanimate Bella as a whole. Uh, so that she is a person again. He admits that all of his medical uh, research and experimentation has led up to this point. Um, So he did what any sane person would obviously have done. You would have done it too. So that is why Bella acts like a baby and acts like a child, and it's because she is. Her brain literally is. Now that Bella has woken up from her chloroform stupor, she has discovered somehow almost immediately upon waking up that she can masturbate using her hand. So this is obviously a monumental experience for her. And while she dines later at the dining room table, she uh, starts to experiment by shoving fruits and vegetables inside of herself at the table in an effort to masturbate as well. When Prim, the nurse walks in on Bella doing this, Bella is like, I've discovered how to make myself happy whenever I want. Your face is sour, um, but that's okay. Let me help you close your eyes. So then she starts to grab Prim's vaginal area. And Prim is like, okay, this girl is fucking sick like no way this is not happening and um max runs in to find out what the commotion is and he's like for the love of god please stop working on yourself like this right now like don't especially not at the table like just don't bella is basically upset the rest of the day because she can't do this whenever she wants she's been told she can't do this at the dinner table she's unhappy she tries to push her plate of food off the table all while max is sitting there dining with them and um dr godwin explains to max the reason for his gastric um gases and why he has to have them to digest food and bella promptly pushes the food off the table even though she was told not to and goes to bed dr godwin takes this opportunity to ask max hey What do you think about, um, marrying Bella? Which is kind of like, uh, marrying a child in my mind, but I suppose that's not how the characters in this film feel. Um, so Max is like, okay, yeah, I mean, I will. She's obviously beautiful, but like, my bad. I thought that you were keeping this girl around because, you know, I thought that she was supposed to be your mistress. Like I thought that this was something that you were doing for your own sexual needs. And Dr. Godwin's like, dude, I'm a mu I'm I'm a eunuch. Like I like can't have sex. Like I can't feel anything, so it doesn't matter to me. And Max is like, Okay, you know what? Actually, this is cool. I will marry her. And Dr. Godwin's like, great, thank you so much. Under the condition that you have to live here with me always and you can never leave. So Max is like, okay, sounds good. Dr. Godwin says he's going to call up an attorney to come in and, you know, write up the agreement for everybody. And (sighs) introducing Mark Ruffalo, Duncan Wedderburn, the lawyer. While he's going over the contract with Dr. Godwin, Duncan says, I have to go to the bathroom. He doesn't actually have to go to the bathroom. He just wants to see what the fuck this Bella girl looks like. Because he's like, why do you want to keep her in the house? Like, why am I drawing this up? I got to see what she looks like. So he sneaks upstairs to go and approach Bella. And this is where everything gets so, so much worse. So Duncan goes upstairs to... Bella's room she's blowing bubbles because again she has the mind of a child and Duncan explains to her like I had to come up here to meet you because there is such a contract of marriage that imprisons you for life you'll be married but you can never leave and she's like well they love me a lot so I can kind of understand that he says well I have to pinch you to make sure that you're real And so then he puts his hands in between her legs and starts to rub her clitoris, which is a bra. that's a bold thing to do to somebody that you've just fucking met, by the way. So he leaves. Later, he scales a ladder up to her window and uh, she's pleasuring herself on her bed. And she's like, look, I can't let you in through the window, but meet me up on the roof. So they go up to the rooftop together and there's fireworks and they start to discuss what their plans might be. So Duncan explains to Bella that, um, she's a prisoner basically. And all he wants to do is free her. He sees someone who's hungry for experience and knowledge and touch and wants to give her all of those things. And he's like, look, I am leaving for Lisbon, Portugal on Friday and I want you to come with me. And at first she's like, I don't really feel like I'm safe with you, but yeah, I want to go. So Bella goes into Dr. Godwin's um, operating theater in the house and tells him that at midnight tonight, she's going to run away with Duncan. And uh, I, she's like, I know that you want to stop me, but I'm going to go like, I need to do this. I want to do this. I'm going to go. I will marry Max. He seems like the right person to be married to, but first I want to go do this. Dr. Godwin tries to reason with her and is like, look, like if you want to travel, we can travel. You, me and Max can travel, especially after you're married. Like why, like, why do you have to do do this now? And you know, she, she's not hearing it. She wants to go. So Prim helps her pack her bags. Max comes in to try to stop her. And that's it. She, she wants to go. She felt this romantic, this, this touch, sexual touch from another man. And she's chasing that. And she would like to run off to be with him. So because Bella is annoyed with uh, Max and him trying to get her to stay, she chloroforms him. And uh, in comes... Dr. Godwin, who gives her some money and sews it into a set of her clothing so that way she has it because he knows that he can't stop her from going. So he's just going to let her go. Once she has arrived in Portugal with um, Mr. Duncan, they engage in nothing else other than an insane amount of sexual activity that I... I don't understand. Um but they have a ton of sex. He takes her out into the world. He shows her how to eat oysters. He shows her, you know, these different like cakes and pastries that she discovers that she likes and he's basically trying to teach a child about the world um while also having copious amounts of sex with her and so I am uncomfortable and I'm sure that you are also. I unfortunately uh, had to watch it. You just have to listen to me talk about it. So one afternoon after some, what Bella refers to as furious jumping, which is sex. Um, she's like, well, I'm rested. I'm ready to go again. And Duncan is like, okay, girl, I know that maybe no one's explained this to you before, but like, men cannot just have repeated orgasms over and over and over again all day long. And she's like, oh, so that must be like a weakness that men have. And he's like, yeah, I guess it is. No one's ever phrased it to him that way, perhaps. So he goes to take a nap. She's not really feeling the nap. So she decides she's going to go explore Lisbon on her own. She gets dressed. She leaves, she scarfs down like a hundred of those stupid tarts that she loves so much. And as she's walking through the city center, she's kind of discovering that the world isn't exactly perfect all the time, right? She hears this beautiful singing, but then in conjunction with that or in stark contrast with that, I guess you could add, there's a couple that are arguing like they're furious at each other. So she's kind of discovering that the world has a lot of things in it that she's not necessarily familiar with. And the world has things that are both good and bad. After Bella returns back to her hotel room, she is prompted to get ready for dinner with Duncan, where they meet up with, um, another married couple that Duncan is friends with. And of course, Bella embarrasses him by spitting her food out at the dinner table. And, uh, he tells her that she's only allowed to say three things for the rest of the dinner which are delighted how marvelous and how did the pastries get so crisp so when they engage in further conversation she the the other married the married woman of the couple that they're having dinner with says that her father is sick and may not see it out through the rest of the year and of course bellows like well you told me i could only say three things so she says how marvelous so of course the dinner never gets better She sends a postcard to Dr. Godwin and Max with a photo of a woman that she drew a photo of a woman with a tram, uh, going into her mouth and that she's doing well while she's in Portugal. And the next day she goes on a grand adventure, which is getting very, very drunk for the first time. She stumbles into a bar and is given a bottle and a shot glass and drinks until she can pretty much no longer function. She falls asleep in the bar, she wakes up hungover, she goes back to the hotel to find uh, Duncan, who's been angrily waiting for her to come back, and as soon as she sits down, he throws a newspaper at her, and a kind woman who does what is a domestic violence um, intervention technique, she comes up and she says, oh, is that you, Victoria? I haven't seen you in years. It's a way to distract, to make it seem like you know someone to get them out of the situation that they're in. And Bella's like, well, and you still haven't because I'm not her. My name is Bella and I've never seen you before. So have a nice day. Later at dinner, Bella and uh, Duncan exchange some words in which he's very angry. And she tells him that sometimes her, his face, like she hates it. She just hates it. He makes her angry. And rather than continuing on with the conversation like, you know, an adult, because she's not, there is a sort of an organized dance routine happening at the spot that they're eating dinner at, and she jumps right in the middle and starts to dance. She's seemingly never danced before, so you can only imagine what that looks like. And uh, Duncan has to join her to make it appear as though they're part of the act, and he's actually quite a good dancer. So thus commences the infamous dancing scene which is actually really really good even though bella can't dance after uh, duncan gets bella to sit back down at the table for just a second there's a man at another table who keeps winking at her and so she winks back in order to be what she says polite and duncan goes over to start beating the shit out of this guy in the middle of this restaurant um and this dancing Group is like, hey, Bella, why don't you join us? We're going to go dancing in town. And she's like, great, I've never been dancing in town. Um, Yeah, so anyways, she ends up not going because they end up going back to their hotel room. Duncan is trying to literally, like, corral a herd of bulls when he's with Bella. And um, they start getting down to business back in their hotel room when he notices that there are these two lines on her inner thighs, and she met someone on some of her adventures who wanted to know if the skin on both of the insides of her thighs were uh, equally as soft. And so she alludes to the fact that she let this person, you know, touch the inner parts of her thighs, and perhaps they exchanged in some um, coitus... Of some sort. And so Duncan is, of course, very upset by this. And he goes down to the bar and the hotel lobby. And starts slamming his face against the counter. Um, and drinking. So, of course, he's not immature or childish in any form or fashion. He's very, very mature. Back at home, Dr. Godwin is getting a little bit frustrated because he's trying to teach a surgery class again and things just aren't going his way. He's making mistakes. And so Max is like, Hey, do you think maybe you're like a little bit upset because you know, Bella is gone. Um, she's coming back. And Godwin's like, look, she's not coming back. And these emotions are just like too much. Like having feelings is not going to further advance science. So what we need to do is we need to go find a body. And Max is like, what the fuck? Like, why can I not just have a normal day where I'm like at a normal teacher's aid? Like, this is just impossible. Back in Portugal, though, Bella wakes up one morning to find that Mr. Duncan has acquired a trunk that is quite literally big enough for a human body and asks Bella to get inside of it. Because he's taking her on an adventure. So she's a little freaked out at first by the idea of getting inside of a trunk and not knowing where she's going. But when she emerges from it, she is in the middle of an ocean on a cruise ship. And she's like, okay, dude, what the hell? Why are you trapping me in the middle of the water? You want me, you basically want me in a confined space where like I can't roam freely and like I can't live life. Immediately, Duncan wants sex. He wants her to be happy and pleased with the fact that he treated her to this cruise, but she's upset and she locks herself in the bathroom. Once Duncan falls asleep, Bella takes the opportunity to go and explore the ship. Of course, it's the middle of the night, so there's really not that many people walking out and about on the ship, but she eventually finds someone from the crew out on um, the balcony. And he is killing a seagull that shit on his uniform. And she's like, hey, I just wanted to know, when do we stop moving? And he's like, well, we're going to be stopping in three days in Athens. And she's like, oh, great. Awesome. So back on the ship, she's just trying to essentially keep her distance from Duncan she's like you know telling him she wants drinks like kind of having him wait on her a little bit she's reading she's drawing she's trying to talk to him about certain things like she expresses to him things that you know she knows what empirically means that she knows a lot about science and He's like, I don't understand how you don't know what love is, but you know what the word empirically means? Like, you are just so confusing. So she runs out of ink for her drawings and she wants a drink. So eventually when Duncan leaves, she finds a table of uh, two other passengers who are just lovely, uh, Martha and Harry. And they open her mind in a way to philosophy and you know how things can be thought about and lines of thinking so martha and harry kind of become her new companions that she tries to spend her time with while she's on the boat this is when duncan's um true self starts to show a little bit he's well, sorry, he already showed his hand of cards previously whenever he threw a newspaper at her because what the fuck, who does that? Okay, I would kill someone. But um, now after he's seen that Bella can kind of make friends with Martha and Harry, he's like, tell me right now that you'll marry me. And she's like, dude, no, I'm I'm already engaged to somebody else. And he's like, say you're going to marry me or I'm going to throw you over the ship. I'm going to throw you overboard. And she's like, so the options are that I marry you or you kill me. That's the proposal. And he's like, well, no. But that's obviously not what he just said. She is puzzled, troubled, and somehow unbothered all at the same time. And he leaves to go and gamble crying at the casino. Now, back with Dr. Godwin and Max, they have found a body and uh, somehow they found a subsequent fetus brain and have developed a new Bella. This new Bella's name is Felicity and she cannot seem to grasp on how to play catch. So things are not going so well for them. Back on the ship, though, Bella is reading um, some philosophy. Some uh, she's she's uh, she's exercising her mind, right? So she's reading Emerson, and she is asking questions to her friends Martha and Harry about you know who she should read next, or having discussions about what she's reading. And they're engaging with her in a very meaningful way, whereas Duncan obviously only wants to fuck her. And either marry her or kill her. So somehow you can do all of those to one person. Duncan eventually approaches her during her reading and asks her to come fuck him. In which she says, you're blocking my son and I'd like to continue to read. He takes her book and throws it into the water. Martha gives her another book. He takes that book out of Bella's hands and throws it into the water. He is just playing a losing game. He is simply not a winning man in any form or fashion. It is at this point that because Bella is maturing at such a rapid rate at this point, that uh, Duncan tells her that she's losing her adorable way of speaking, meaning she's speaking more like an adult. And that line in and of itself makes me want to throw up in my shoes so frustrated that he can't get bella to come back to the bedroom with him he goes off to the casino to gamble some more because what could possibly make life better for you than gambling when you're upset when bella later goes to seek companionship from duncan while he's gambling he wisps her away or like waves her off and says you know shoe basically i'm drinking and i'm busy right now so he finally comes back into the hotel room where she is reading and starts to kiss her feet and legs she admits to duncan that she doesn't have time for this right now because she's about to go meet martha to which duncan reveals that he thinks that martha is the problem here so he says he's gonna throw martha overboard calls her a bag of heavily perfumed flesh and Bella's like okay I dare you so he sets off to go find Martha and Bella walks and runs behind him excitedly but when he inevitably runs into Harry and Martha he uh, is not so successful Martha's like, well, I never imagined being murdered in this way. And Harry's like, she seems excited to die. Like, please go ahead. As he's dragging Martha to the edge of uh, the railing to throw her, he's stopped by two, uh, two crew members of the boat and dragged away. So he tells Bella that he'll be at the bar because more alcohol sounds like a great idea right now. And back in the hotel room, he passes out with basically his clothes almost still on. And Bella lies awake, troubled and afraid and really just wanting to get the fuck off this boat. Because she can't sleep, she goes to find Harry in his room. And Harry is of the philosophical ideal that all people are beasts. We're born beasts. We die beasts. We are the animals of the kingdom that we're a part of. And this uh, kind of insinuates that there's some cruelty to us as well. And this really troubles her because she doesn't want to be a cruel person. She wants to be a good person. The next day, um, she and Harry spend some more time together where they disembark off the boat and take a cable car up to the top of, I guess, a mountain, you could say, um, in Alexandria in which they have dinner um and during this dinner she's you know they're conversing they're talking about the world and essentially harry tells her like look the world is not all that you think it is it you you think that there's not cruel in this world but there is cruelty everywhere if you go to look for it so he takes her outside of this restaurant to this sort of viewing platform that they have and essentially it's this rich you know restaurant on the top of a mountain and when you go outside to look over the edge you see what is essentially a slum there's dead bodies there's dead babies there's people with no clothes you know it's it's like the most the the one of the most extreme examples of poverty that you can imagine but also a very real example of poverty in the world And this absolutely mortifies Bella to the point that she's crying, she's running, she wants to help. And so she starts to run down this very long staircase that leads up to the top of the mountain where this restaurant is. And Harry rightfully stops her while she's running so that she doesn't continue on because actually they reached this mountain via cable car and the stairs actually don't continue on to the bottom. There's actually a break. So she would have killed herself in an attempt to go and assist these people she's clearly very heartbroken by the fact that the world actually is cruel and that there's nothing that she can do to fix some of it when she gets back on the boat she goes back to her room to find Duncan is asleep in a drunken stupor on the bed with money everywhere all over the bed he won a lot of money gambling she collects all the money and puts it in a box and goes out to try to go back to this slum that she found to give people these this money um two crew members stop her and they're like hey like we're we're leaving we're not you know connected to land anymore i'm sorry like but you can't you can't get off the boat now um and she's like well i really need to give money to these people like they need money and they're like, well, lady, everybody needs money. So they offer, of course, to take the money from her and give it to these people. They're never going to give it to these people. They're going to keep the money for themselves, obviously. But naively, she thinks that they're going to give it to the people that need the help. So she comes back to the room to find that Duncan is throwing a fit, saying that they've been robbed. He has a member of the crew in there. He's like, I won. I want everything. Like, and all the money is gone. We obviously got robbed. And Bella's like, oh, no, you didn't get robbed. I took the money. I gave it to these people who needed it more than me, needed it more than us. And she's exhausted by all these emotions that she's been feeling all day. So she lies down in the bed, and Duncan is just absolutely infuriated with her at this point. He can't keep her all to himself. She doesn't love him in the way that he's obsessively infatuated with her. He is now poor he lost all the money that he brought and gambled with and they come to collect money from him for the stay the next voyage on the cruise and he doesn't have any money to pay for it because bella gave all of the money away so because that they cannot make good on their account so because all the money's gone uh they have to get off at the next dock and they will not be allowed to continue on the rest of the cruise so bella goes on to say goodbye to harry the day prior when they were in Alexandria, she actually bit Harry, um, whenever he was trying to hold her back on the stairs and she apologizes for it. And he says, it's okay. It was cruel of me because I actually wanted to hurt you a little bit. Um, I wanted to show you this cruelty in the world. And you know, the fact that you bit me is just a consequence of that. And so I'm sorry as well. They say say their goodbyes, then Duncan and Bella have to get off in um, Paris. Or they get off in Marseille and then travel to Paris, I should say. So now they have no money and they don't have any clothes because they didn't bring a coat and it's snowing in Paris. And Bella's like, look, I'm going to get us a hotel. I'm going to make it right. So she turns this into a bit of an experiment. She's like, okay, look, we have nothing and so we're gonna try to make something out of nothing we're poor now she goes up to a woman who's standing outside smoking a cigarette of a place that looks like a hotel so she's like hey is this a hotel and the woman is like well we have rooms it's a brothel and so she tells bella basically look you charge people 30 francs an hour I keep 10 that's how it works you need money this is great so Bella goes in she 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 prostitutes herself and makes some money well Duncan is infuriated by this he's already mad at her he's calling her a bitch she's thoughtless bitch she's ruthless like she left them with nothing and she's like I'm not thoughtless like I'm gonna figure it out So by the time she comes back to tell him about the fact that she made money by fucking somebody else, he is completely beside himself upset. She clearly sees how upset he is and is like, okay, I just want to get rid of you. It's fine. Keeps calling her a cunt. And so she pulls out the emergency money that Dr. Godwin had put inside of her suitcase and is like, I'll book you a you know, a ticket back to London, and he is like, oh my fuck, we've been in emergency mode for weeks, and, like, you should have just given me this money to begin with. This is so ridiculous. So he takes all of it from her, and she decides to stay and work in Paris as a prostitute. Now, during her time as a prostitute, she does some things that may not be... um found funny by a lot of people including myself she befriends a fellow uh prostitute there who also becomes like a lover to her which of course is beautiful and they become great friends um she notices at this time that you know there's a scar in her stomach and this other woman that she's befriended notices it as well and um her friend tells her like hey my mom had a similar scar because she was pregnant like have you been pregnant before and Bella's like no not that I know of but obviously she has so she takes on work and she does some obviously very questionable things that I did not personally find funny but everybody else in the theater thought was apparently very funny for example she has a father bring in his two young sons to teach them about sex so they fuck in front of his two children which I find to be disgusting but some good things do come out of her time there because she learns French and she starts to take some um, medical school type classes and she learns about socialism and um, of course Duncan can't stay away so he comes back And she's like i thought i fucking got rid of you and he's like oh well i called my mom and told her to prepare our wedding bed and she's like i literally don't know how else to tell you that i want you to get the fuck away from me meanwhile back with godwin and max um felicity is uh clearly not bella she's not she's not improving in the same way she's painting on the walls with blood with her feet and her fingers and he's you know godwin is like look like there i have no feelings for this girl like i just don't i don't have feelings the way that i had feelings for bella i'm not trying to be cruel to her i'm just trying to maintain my emotional distance in the name of science felicity she kind of sucks she she's not bella godwin asks max if he will remove what appears to be a cyst and um during the surgery when they open him up he discovers that there's multiple cysts there's polyps there's everything he's he has cancer he's he's going to die so bella eventually ends up telling her madam that she has no empathy anymore she feels nothing she you know is just kind of there um so she's starting to worry about herself Meanwhile, Duncan has gotten himself checked into an insane asylum and is locked in a padded room. He writes a letter to Dr. Godwin and explains that Bella is the devil and that Dr. Godwin should be ashamed of himself. He has destroyed him because he has unleashed evil into the world. So Max goes to visit him and is merely looking to just find out where bella is because he knows that duncan knows where she is and obviously he wants to bring her home to say goodbye because he wants her to say goodbye to dr godwin because he's dying once he finds out where bella is he sends her a postcard with a drawing of dr godwin on it and it says you know rip to die soon So Bella makes her way back to visit Dr. Godwin before his unfortunate death upon her arrival. She asks for an explanation upon which Dr. Godwin lets her know that yes, she had a baby in her and that she is somehow both her child and the mother all at the same time. So she finally uncovers how she came into the world and she's obviously upset by it. Of course, Dr. Godwin would love to see his daughter, quote-unquote daughter, get married before he dies, and so um, they set up a meeting, uh, basically, because it's it's not really a wedding, I guess it kind of is, uh, in which he can be there to watch his daughter wed Max into the ceremony we go, and... None other than Mr. Duncan shows up because he cannot stand to let anything just be okay. Duncan brings with him none other than a man named General Alfie Blessington. Alfie addresses Bella as Victoria. So remember when there was the woman who tried to intervene that I mentioned earlier who called Bella Victoria after Duncan threw the newspaper at her? She was being sincere. This Bella's name previously was Victoria and Victoria had been married to Alfie before she threw herself off of a bridge. So she agrees to leave with Alfie who is an incredibly cruel, cruel man. Um, He holds guns at the heads of all that serve him. He lives in a beautiful castle He is sadistic in every way imaginable. And quickly, Bella realizes that this must have been what life was like when I was Victoria. It's no wonder she threw herself off of a bridge. She wanted to escape this abusive dynamic and relationship she had with Alfie. So during her time there, she, of course, everywhere she goes, she's trapped, right? Everywhere she is, she's trapped by a man. Now that she's confined in this, like, mansion with Alfie, he essentially devises a plan because she is... He discovers, you know, she's, like, obsessed with sex. um, That he is going to have her genitally mutilated and threatens her at gunpoint to, to do so. He wants her to drink a cocktail that he has poured chloroform into so that she can be sedated for this genital mutilation procedure and quick thinking, Bella, uh, she takes this cocktail, throws it into his face. And, um, you know, in this fight that ensues, Alfie shoots himself in the foot before he inevitably passes out. Godwin ends up dying, unfortunately, but luckily he was able to, you know, kind of have a wedding um for Bella but also he was able to see her right she came back and she decides that she wants to be a doctor and carry on the work that her father had started much like Dr Godwin had done with his father's work and um she wants to do so with the accompaniment of Max who she's chosen as her partner and the friend that she made um, while she was working in the brothel Toinette. And um, they watch over Felicity and keep in mind her, uh, her progress. And, of course, we couldn't have a true ending for Yorgos Lanthimos without something otherworldly other occurring. They actually end up taking Alfie and switching his brain with that of a sheep, and he lives in the yard now. So that's that's really nice. And that is Yorgos Lanthimos, Poor Things. So thank God we got through the part about the movie. I, like, it troubles me to no end, this film, I, I in ways that I cannot explain. I don't know how to put it into words. So let's talk about the way that it was filmed. So a lot of this was filmed with practical effects you'll notice that for example when they show the cruise ship it was it's actually like a toy boat and i'll, I'll um I'll, I'll link an article that i think is really helpful um it's called inside the curious odd world of poor things by christian holub from um entertainment it's like a lot of it was shot with practical effects so like the boat when you're looking at the cruise ship was actually like a toy boat that they put with like a backdrop as it moved um a lot of like the set design was like essentially a set with like a backdrop so like a lot of the stuff wasn't actually there so a really good use of of space right like instead of and everything looks surreal everything looks fantastical the colors are really rich things that are are bright are are brighter things that are dark are somehow made brighter but look dark at the same time um it's actually crazy how this was like totally designed so I think for that alone, the aesthetic is just absolutely incredible. So it's a mix of practical, it's a mix of nod, it's a mix of old school, new school. I like the way that the two are combined here. Another interesting thing to note is that the lenses through which, you know, a lot of this was shot, um, there was you know, using mixing of cameras and lenses. So for example, on a 35 millimeter camera, they would put a 16 millimeter lens. So that creates sort of like a a vignette type of effect. And that has, you know, darker borders. Um, And, you know, sometimes they would put like a four millimeter lens on and you know just playing with different ways to make the space look a certain way and make it look a certain way to the audience so sometimes like you'll notice there are uh like some pretty portrait-esque looking scenes and there are some that look like you're looking into like a fishbowl, where like you can see what's in the middle but everything else is kind of blurred around the edges and things look normal size in the middle but smaller around the edges really creative it was a nice way to i don't know view a film like for fuck's sake i feel like sometimes we're just not creative anymore and this was this was outstandingly creative emma stone did an actors on actors um, interview with bradley cooper which i will link also because i think it's really interesting to hear them talk they're actually pretty good friends and so they talked a lot about how she chose to come up with the walk, for example. Bella has a very distinct walk and her gait, right? And it sort of evolves throughout the film. Um, the, ca- the characters, the actors, they spend with Yorgos Lanthimos, she, she mentioned, that they spend a lot of time together, you know, before shooting the actual film. So they would do things like theater um, exercises and, you know, like they would eat all their meals together and they would spend a lot of time together and it just sort of gets everybody comfortable with the set and how they're going to, you know, work together, right? Um, And Yorgos Lanthimos and Emma Stone obviously have a prior relationship. Emma Stone was in um, The Favourite, which was, I believe, also nominated for best picture. Actually, I know it was Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, I happen to love the favorite and you can tell that they have a really healthy dynamic between director and actress and um, Emma Stone clearly is talented. That's not really up for debate, but to be able to work with someone who she's comfortable with and who, you know, she uh has that sort of open dialogue with kind of helped create this character. Um, and it's interesting because I listened to something else that Margot Robbie dis- discussed, which was when she was coming up with, you know um, how she was going to portray Barbie. Similarly to Emma Stone in poor things, these are not characters with any sort of like reference material, right? There there's no like film in which this is being, you can't reference a film that this has been done before. There is no poor things film before this. So really you're coming up with this character entirely on your own, much like Margot Robbie had to do whenever she was, um, uh, creating the character for Barbie, right? Like we've seen animated versions of Barbie, but we've never seen like real life Barbie. So how do you kind of, you know, take what's in your head and make it work? And by God, Emma Stone makes it work. This is just such an incredible performance by her. It's something that I've, again, never seen before. And I think something that, you know, most people will maybe have never seen and that we might not ever see again because of how unique it actually is. Now we get to the part where we talk about what I think about this movie. So creative yes of course um it is based on a novel um i will not take away the creativity i never could i will not take away the effort i never could i have slight issues with the subject matter so you're telling me that a woman was found her body and there was an, an infant, a fetus, essentially, because I wasn't fully formed, brain that was implanted into this grown woman's head. Now, while I think that's an interesting premise to tell a story, does it trouble me deeply? Absolutely. Um, and throughout the film, there's so much of an emphasis on the autonomy that she, Bella, has over her life. She didn't obviously consent. She wanted to die. That was her choice. That was her autonomy. Was she able to die? No, because someone else played God and brought her back to life. Then she studied as a sort of experiment, and she's not allowed to leave her home. Everything she does is under close scrutiny. It's under watch. She's being observed by, you know, Max, who at first to her is a strange man. She is very, very childlike through much of the film. And I think the, uh, the choice to use black and white at, I believe it's about the first 30 minutes roughly or so of the film is interesting it almost shows that like this is the state that bella's brain is sort of operating under um which is to say that she is not seeing the world the way the rest of us see it because her working knowledge of the world is so little um she is literally a child she's an infant and so starting in the beginning of the film, her, her infancy is really disturbing to watch as she's operating within the body of a grown adult woman. She... When she exits that state of infancy, however, the film opens up for us in color. And I think that that is a really... I mean, that's interesting, right? That's an interesting use of color dynamics. They had such a beautiful set to film. This home was absolutely stunning. And I can imagine that at first, uh, the choice to film in black and white or have it in black and white was um, a little frustrating. But of course, everything has a purpose and this ended up working out for them. So when... The film starts to open back up in color. We kind of see Bella's life and her brain development progressing. I don't have a problem with the... With the uh, necessarily de- the development stages. What I have a problem with is the sexualization of her at certain stages. Um if she looked physically any younger than she is, like, I feel like this film would have been like a nightmare. Um, this would be like a pedophiles, you know, dream. It's like so disturbing to watch because we can all remember, right? Let's take, for example, when she discovers masturbation, we can kind of, um, come to the idea that she's in the uh adolescent slash prepubescent stage where she's discovering her body she's no longer like putting things in her mouth as often she's not you know small children learn by literally touching and putting things in their mouth um she kind of stops to do she stops doing that which is great because that was also troubling at the beginning but We all can remember when we were in, you know, the prepubescent or puberty stages of our lives, discovering our bodies. I don't, again, feel like there's anything wrong with that. However, because it's unclear to determine at what stages she's actually in, we know with a finite answer, our brain is kind of running wild with this, that she's a child and we're watching a child masturbate. We're watching a child be... Completely and overly sexualized by all that are around her. And these men are so predatory with her. The only person who I think isn't is Max. And he even toes that line because he wants to marry her while she's, you know, still not, her brain still isn't fully developed as an adult brain. So that's, you know, a little bit uh, hairy for me. However, I, I like to see that as, or I like to imagine, I should say, that simply because we're watching this occur to the body of an adult woman, there's a little bit of ourselves in that as well. We all remember, like I said, discovering our bodies via masturbation or touching for the first time. We... Remember what it feels like or felt like whenever sex was something new to us and maybe we were slightly overly promiscuous for a short period of time. Bella is experiencing those things as well. So in that way, she's relatable. But throughout the entire film, I mean, you can't escape the fact that she is completely under the control of everyone around her all the time. The only time that she's kind of not under control is when she's working as a prostitute in the brothel and even there she's still i mean she is choosing to have sex with these people i understand that um and luckily she had a madam who allowed her to leave whenever she you know was um going to visit her her ill father she is constantly in a state of trying to get out, which is the very reason that she attempted to take her life or did take her life at the beginning of the film. She was under the control of her former ex-husband or her former husband, Alfie, when she was uh, named Victoria, he was controlling. He was awful. He was sadistic. He's absolutely disgusting. He's abusive to her. She wanted to escape that life only to fall unfortunately right back into it and she falls back into it by not having control over the way under which she was um like she wanted to die and then someone brought her back to life so it's almost like she didn't have control over even that choice like she just doesn't have any control over anything she didn't have control over who she wanted to marry dr godwin picked who she would marry she goes out for a sense of freedom with duncan and the whole entire time he's she's with duncan he's trying to control her he wants her all to himself he doesn't want her to interact with the outside world and for that reason i find duncan to be the most troubling character in the entire film because when he makes the comment to her on the cruise ship about how she doesn't she doesn't talk cute anymore she's not speaking the way that she used to she doesn't have that childlike quality to her anymore almost kind of sickening it's like he was like enamored or like infatuated with these adolescent and childlike qualities within her that we often find in predatory men who go after children he's also obsessed with her and wants her to be who she was but her brain is developing at such a rapid pace that of course he can't slow it down and you know, that's that's kind of what makes me so uncomfortable with his character. And I think what makes him uncomfortable for so many of us is that he is that predator in the night that you also know, right? He is, um, he sees this this girl who has the mind of a child and he's like, oh, I want some of that. And then as soon as she develops a sense of, you know, maturity, all of a sudden he doesn't like her anymore. Um, that's just sickening to me in, in every form and fashion. And I don't really feel like that needs much more explaining. Then she tries to make a decision where she is, uh, gonna marry Max finally of her own volition. She wants to do that. And then she falls back under the trap of Alfie and then she finally breaks free from him. It's like the whole film is just about her trying to find this control over her life and some autonomy over her life, which is obviously very confusing for her because after she finds out where she came from, essentially, when she finds out from Dr. Godwin how she was um, brought into the world, that wasn't natural either. Um, So she's obviously struggling with this a lot, and, and we often find, of course, that or observe, I should say, that um, overly promiscuous behavior is often a way to regain control over one's life or regain a sense of control, but somehow you end up falling victim to even that, right? You, You somehow find a way to fall victim to the very thing that you think you are controlling. It's actually controlling you. And eventually, when Dr. Godwin dies, now she finally has control over her own life she's you know partnering with who she wants to she lives in a home with who she wants to live with she is you know trying to fulfill her dream of becoming a doctor so finally we rest easy at the end knowing that she is finally in control of her life I just can't help but wonder if all of the sex that we had to watch to get to this point was really fully necessary I do think that the God character or the Dr. Godwin character who essentially is God is a nice driving force to the film. He created her, right? He watches over her. He loves her. He feels fatherly toward her. And eventually when he dies, it's like, okay, now now there's no more control he was the source of her control, right? Because he was the source of the reason why she exists. So I find that the God, um, trope or godlike trope isn't necessarily religion-based, but control-based. And so I hope that that resonated with those of you that watched as well. Similarly with the God idea, we always hear if you grew up going to church or, um, you know, as I certainly heard it. Our God is a vengeful God. Our God is cruel or can be cruel. And you see that here as well. Um, Harry often, you know, throughout his time with Bella tried to instill in her that there is cruelty in the world, even if you don't necessarily see it outright. Dr. Godwin's character is cruel. I mean, he couldn't just let this woman fucking die when she wanted to he took over and, and created something out of her that she didn't want done to her um and that is why when she finds out she is so hurt when she finds out about how she came to be she's hurt she is angry she ultimately struggles with the fact that she loves her this man who she's grown to known to be her father but it's a difficult dynamic right because that love was a result of cruelty we also see the cruelty with duncan right he's so obsessed over her and wanting to be with her and wanting to have her all to himself that he speaks to her in horrible ways but somehow is so obsessed with her that he can't let her go and makes her life hell and it's almost like the introduction of alfie back into her life via duncan was just another way to drive home to her that, look, bitch, you're still not in control. This is another way that I still have you under wraps. This is my way of punishing you for all the things that you did. I f- I'm not going to let you live a happy life. I'm going to take you back to the life that you lived whenever you were, you know, whenever, before before you are what you were now, essentially. And while control and autonomy are, you know, I think the two main central, obviously, themes within the film, we also can't forget the theme of identity, right? Um, Bella is not Victoria anymore. She was Victoria. She's not now. And so for her, she's, you know, constantly grappling with all of these questions. So she's learning about the world. She's... Trying to uncover who she is, where she came from, who her parents are, how she came to be. Why is life the way that it is? And we can tell through subtle things, right? Like when she gets reunited with Alfie, whether she, you know, whether that was something that inevitably she would have decided to do had she known what her previous life was like with him. He mentions, you know, certain foods that she used to like that she doesn't really like anymore she's just not the same person and she's coming to find out what kind of person she is. And it's kind of cool to see because it's almost like, imagine this, if you started life purely as an adult with no working memory of what happened to you in your prior years in existence on planet earth, how would you search for who you are? How would you define who you are? What would you do to uncover who you are so those are all really interesting things and i think the concept of the identity while obviously popularized in social sciences here takes on a slightly different meaning because i mean why even though she's you know she's an experiment yes which i have there are there are so many ethics at question here she has such little interaction with the people who raise her, meaning she doesn't have much interaction with uh, Dr. Godwin. It's not like a parent-child dynamic. It's a, it's a Dr. Frankenstein and monster dynamic. So she's learning about the world by asking questions by discovering by seeing by traveling by interacting with others in ways that she wants to so it's it's uh, also an interesting identity formation study um via nature versus nurture and you can make the argument of course that she gets involved with all of these people she gets involved with duncan she gets involved with max She gets involved with Alfie, you know, she works in a brothel for a while, like her world is shaped through these experiences, sure, but she's also finding out about herself by making decisions on her own, like she makes the decision to go on the trip with Duncan, she makes the decision to work in the brothel, she is, you know, using her autonomy to the best of the best that she can within her circumstances obviously but in an effort to learn about herself so that's also a really interesting you know character study that you can do for Bella Baxter all that is to say that I still don't know I've seen the film twice how exactly I feel I feel conflicted I feel that I would have gotten the point without all of the sex, you know, with someone who doesn't have a fully formed adult brain. And that's something that still deeply troubles me. But the ethics of, you know, science and how far we're willing to go, the ethics of parenting styles, the... um the the world of self-discovery that we all embark on in different ways in our life um you know whether or not we should shelter you know people and not show them the world or whether or not we should show them and let them be cynical i'm often of the view that you just show people things and they can make up their own minds better to know than to not know but that's just me personally so, I, I, like I said, I'm conflicted with how I feel. I, I believe that the film itself is beautiful. It has everything you could ask for. It has vibrant colors. It has beautiful set design. It has creative use of effects. It has creative use of camera angles and camera lenses. It, um, the wardrobe, the music, oh my God, the music is just haunting and stays with me. Every time I think about this film, I can hear the music in my head. So I think it's a strong film, I do. Now how I feel about it is another story. I, again, I don't know. Um, maybe one day if I watch it again, then I'll have a more firm answer for you all. But this might be one of the only times that I've been truly stumped with whether or not I can say that I like something. I can respect something without liking it. And I think that might be where I am. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So all that is to say, I wanted to thank you all very much for listening to this episode. And I hope that you take some time to watch poor things, Yorgos Lanthimos. And just if nothing else, if you could just watch it for Emma Stone's performance, I think you'll be absolutely floored. Um, You can buy it right now. I I don't know when it'll be available for rent or free streaming. You can purchase it. I did on, um, Amazon prime. So yeah, for $20, you can sit at home and be just as confused as me. So just to take some time to remind you that the final girl on sixth Avenue is part of the incredible morbidly beautiful network. Morbidly Beautiful is your home for horror. If you love horror in any way, shape, or form, you are welcome at morbidlybeautiful.com. You can find my podcasts and many others like it, as well as insightful film reviews and so much more. You can find this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed the show, it would mean the world to me if you left me a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or requests, you can always email me at finalgirlon6 at gmail.com, or you can send me a message on Instagram at finalgirlon6. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Sorry, it was a little longer than I normally like to make my episodes, but the complexity of this film and how much detail I had to give surrounding the narrative, I feel like was uh, was of the utmost importance. I will talk to you all in two weeks. So never forget that I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl and I'll talk to you soon.